And so today he'll be preaching from Matthew 6.33, um, which you can find on page 812 in the House Bibles. So if you would, please stand with me um, as I read aloud Matthew 6.33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for always leading us, and thank you that um, we get to know you and know who you are, um, and I pray that you would just soak our hearts in humility as we begin um, going through the book of Matthew, and I pray for Kevin, um, that you would just speak through him, um, and that you would just bring our church body into more and more of a reliance on you, and thank you that we're able to gather together today. Amen. Good morning, cars. Excited to get into to Matthew. We're jumping into Advent the next, in the next couple of weeks. Um, November 21st, Billy Gloss is coming back to preach. So if you, yeah, don't skip that, that Sunday. Um, I like to tell the story about how one time after he preached, um, somebody met me as I was walking out and they said, good luck following that up. Appreciate the encouragement. That's, that's really sweet. Um, but yeah, don't miss November 21st. Um, there, there are two questions that are so important for each of us to answer, and they're, they're these. You've heard us share these before. They are, who am I and why am I here? Who am I, why am I here? What's our identity and what's our purpose? If we never get to the answers to those questions, we'll wander aimlessly through life, through this world. But even if we learn our answers, um, our identity and purpose are just so easy for us to forget. We're seeing that so much today in America. Maybe you missed this this week, but something happened this week in Dallas that blew my mind. Okay, so a lot of things in Texas, I would say, blow my mind, but this especially did. Hundreds of, of QAnon followers gathered Tuesday at the site where John F. Kennedy was assassinated some 60 years ago. They showed up early Tuesday morning, probably with breakfast burritos in tow. Um, they were fully convinced that JFK Jr., who died in a plane crash 20 years ago, would return from hiding along with his pops, and Jr. would then reinstate former President Trump. He would serve as his vice president, and the two of them together would restore the United States to what they would say its former glory. So hundreds stood there, flags in hands, literally waiting for a parade. They claimed that other dead celebrities would come out of hiding and join them for the celebration. Folks were convinced that they had seen Robin Williams there, had seen Richard Pryor there, for the younger folks that are some older dead comedians. One woman even shouted her excitement that Kobe Bryant was going to show up. Wow. Uh, a man passed along another rumor that a resurrected rapper had come on the scene, and someone said, Tupac, maybe? Well, when the honored guests didn't arrive, some of the crowd pivoted to another prediction. The Kennedys, that group of dead celebrities, too, would show up at the Rolling Stones concert later that night. So one live streamer at the event cried out, Rolling Stones, like rolling away the stone. Now, to be clear, um, most 
Pew supporters would call that Dallas rally extreme, so they would say that's the fringe of the fringe. But one could also argue that it's just one of the most severe cases of this sickness that has overtaken the soul of America and really the American church. Because most of the people there would call themselves Christians. They weren't just shouting JFK, JFK. They were shouting God bless America. These are people that have been discipled by our churches. And I think they remind us, or they should, that we have forgotten who our king is. And we have too much given ourselves to other kingdoms. We've sold him for 30 pieces of silver. And now we'll buy anything as a result. Today we're going to embark on a journey through the Gospel of Matthew, one that we will be in for a while, you could say. We're going to walk through it verse by verse, and here we will be reminded over and over of our identity, and we'll see together again and again our purpose. Now generally here in Cars, when we use the word gospel, we're talking about the good news. What Jesus came to do through his life, death, and resurrection. But when we open up the New Testaments, we quickly notice that the first four books of the Bible are called Gospels, right? When we, when we use the term that way, we're talking about a type of book in the Bible. We're talking about a genre of literature. So these aren't letters written to churches like most of the books in the New Testament. They're little history books. So let us listen in on some of Christ's teachings and get a glimpse of many of his deeds. Now, like all history books, all of them... Each of these Gospels has a take. They have an angle on Christ. That's why we have four of them. And together they interpret history for us. Each Gospel writer has his own way, inspired by the Spirit of telling us who Jesus is and what he came to do. And if we take them all together, we get these four angles and we really get this full, beautiful picture about who Jesus is, of what the Gospel is. Now, we see this book of the Bible, of course, is called the Gospel of Matthew. There's no byline in the text like there is in the, the Tribune or even really in, in Paul's letters. But from the very early days, this book has been attributed to Matthew, the tax collector, you know, who became one of the disciples of Jesus. As we'll soon see in the weeks ahead, there he was, he's seated at that tax booth in his chair. He had sold out to the government. He's robbing his own people from their hard-earned money. Until Jesus comes and calls him as his own. Now he likely wrote the book back in the 60s AD, after the Gospel of Mark, but before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Scholars think the original audience was the church of Antioch in Syria. However, it was quickly circulated among God's people and we're still reading it, of course, today. It seems like Matthew's early audience, this first audience, were converts from Judaism. There's all these references to the, the Old Testament here that we're going to see, all these Jewish customs that are just assumed. And, and Matthew here is writing, and he's, and he's encouraging, um, on one hand, these converted Jews to continue to embrace Jesus the Messiah, but he's also trying to embolden them for the suffering that's going to come from their fellow countrymen, but also from the Gentiles that surrounded them. Now, there's several ways scholars have outlined the book, but there's one I think that seems to be the most compelling, the, the most embraced, 
by, by folks, and you'll see it laid out here on the screen. And we're going to look at it, and we'll begin to see some of the themes of the gospel emerge. So this is as academic, as geeky as we're probably going to get in this series, so just bear with me. I think it's helpful to understand what's going on. Well, first, there's an extended introduction or prologue in chapters 1 and 2, and those cover the child birth, the, the childhood of Jesus, and we're going to have we're going to have the privilege of walking through them during this Advent season again in just a couple of weeks. Second, we come to the meat, the body of the book, and there are these five alternating cycles between stories about Jesus and sermons from him. In chapters three and four, you can go to the next slide. There, in chapters three and four, we see the beginnings of Christ's ministry. And then we listen to an extended message where Christ describes how the citizens of his kingdom live. Chapters 5 through 7 are what you maybe heard of, the Sermon on the Mount. And here we see that Jesus radically transforms lives and people of the kingdom live in a radically different way. He makes people who actually confess and mourn over their sin and when they're bullied, they actually turn their other cheek. And that sermon we so much need to hear today as, as we who claim Christ too much, I think, in America have not looked like what we see in the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. In chapters 8 and 9, we see Jesus displaying the power of his kingdom. We begin to see miracles. And then in the second sermon in chapter 10, we hear Christ proclaim what servants of his kingdom endure. His disciples, his ministers are so often just not well received will undergo persecution. We follow, after all, a master who was crucified. And we can so easily lose sight of this and get caught up in winning, of being respected, of getting what we think we deserve. We need to hear Jesus here. Chapters 11 and 12, we see Christ going about teaching about the kingdom. In chapter 13, we learn what our king's reign is like. In the, in the book's third sermon, he speaks in, parab in parables that teach us the shape of the kingdom. And boy, do we need to hear those because our culture has shaped us so much as the church where we get in this mindset where we think everything needs to go bigger and faster and flashier. But that's not the way his kingdom works. In chapters 14 through 17, we see Jesus continue to minister in word and deed with power. In the fourth sermon in chapter 18, we hear Christ describe the heart of those in his kingdom. Those hearts are full of humility and they're eager to forgive. We see how his kingdom children love. Is there anything more basic to Christianity than humbling ourselves before God and others and extending the love that we've received to them? But so often we can just slip away and forget that. In our last section of story and sermon, we come to chapters 19 through 23. And there's this growing opposition to Jesus. They're more and more talking about putting him to death. Jesus still is preaching boldly and healing people with compassion. And the final sermon in chapters 24 and 25 is preached on the Mount of Olives. It's called the Olivet Discourse for that reason. And here we learn how our king's reign will come. And man, do we ever need that reminder. Because otherwise we may be the people at the parades or we may be the people flashing our AK-47s trying to defend a kingdom here on earth that looks nothing like it. So there are those five groups of story, sermon, story, sermon that make up the main body, but we can't forget the end because there's this 
conclusion, there's this epilogue, this climax, chapters 26 through 28, and this is where Christ goes, as promised, to the cross and rises from the grave for our salvation. Now, as, as I walk through this so far, we've seen some themes that emerge, but we've not gotten to the main two themes where we get our theme, our king, his kingdom. The first one, the king is here. The king is here. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what Matthew wants us to get. We're going to jump into this as early as next week. But Matthew calls Jesus in the book's first verse, the son of David. And he wants us to see Jesus as this long-awaited Messiah, the anointed one. This promised king that was foretold in the Old Testament who would bring salvation, the god -man. Now, the Jews of that day, of course, they, they waited for such a figure. They wanted their Messiah, but they had no categories, did they, for a king who would suffer and die and then one day, later, rule and reign. They couldn't comprehend one who would come first and then come again, first in humility and later in glory, so they rejected him and they pushed him away. The second thing, his kingdom has come. In Christ, the rule of God has come to earth, and through it, peace. Peace on earth. Matthew, unlike the other Gospels, he likes the phrase, the kingdom of heaven. As God originally intended, heaven and earth are going to be one again. They're going to be one, starting with the coming of Jesus, and then enduring forever. So Jesus comes and says, the kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven is among you. Again, those of Christ's day were looking for such a kingdom, but they couldn't imagine one that would come in two phases. You know, first in part and later in full. That was confusing. They had no categories for a kingdom that would come in small ways, in spiritual ways, and then only later encompassing the whole earth. So they turned their backs on him and the kingdom that he was ushering in. So there, God's people are, the Jews, they're in the land, they're under the thumb of the Roman Empire, the longing for the son of David, who would defeat their enemies, put them in power once again, and here comes Jesus saying the kingdom has come. And they're like, what? He spends time with the last, the least, the lost. He doesn't come on a white horse, he rides in on a donkey. He speaks in parables that most people couldn't understand. He calls out the religious leaders of that day with boldness. Even his disciples couldn't understand how he could be the king. God's people, the Jews, along with the Romans, they put him to death. But he doesn't stay in the grave. And there he shows himself as king and he guarantees the coming of his kingdom. Graham Goldsworthy uh, defines the kingdom of God in this way. I think it's helpful. God's people in God's place under God's rule. God's people in God's place under God's rule. And this has always been God's intention. If you think back in the beginning, in the garden, Adam and Eve, God's people, are there in Eden, God's place, and they're under God's rule for a while, right? They, they know their identity at the start as children of God made in His image. They know their purpose to rule under God over His creation, cultivating the earth, but they end up resisting God's reign. They turn from this love. They listen to the serpent. They want to do things their way, and so they're cast out from God's place. Down the road, the Lord again 
gathers the people under Abraham, and he brings them into the land again, and he gives them a king, David. God's people are in God's place under God's rule, sort of, for a while. But his descendants then, they, they turn their backs, the people resist God's rule again, and again, they're cast out of God's place. But in the midst of that, the Lord promises to them that one day a son of David would reign as king again, and he would reign forever and ever. They would be in the land, the kingdom would come, but this time it was going to span the whole globe. God's people would be in God's place under God's rule forever and ever under this Messiah. That's the hope of the Bible, and that's what Matthew, inspired by God, wants us to long for and labor for. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. But like those in Christ's day, we can get so confused. Back then, you maybe have heard of these guys. They had the Pharisees. The religious leaders, those on the right, who thought that if people would just, if they would just obey God again, if they would keep the law from crying out loud, everything would be okay, and God's kingdom would come. Also with them, even further on the right, you had this group called the Zealots. And they were willing to resort to violence. They were willing to do whatever it would take to get themselves back in power. Over to the left, you have the Sadducees. You see them in the Gospels. They were religious leaders who were trying to cozy up to the Romans. You know, they thought, hey, we want to be in power. Like, these guys are in power. Let's get close to them. And they were even like, hey, sometimes you may have to, you know, compromise a little bit of what you believe. You know, God will understand and then, of course, you had the bad guys, the left of the left, the Romans, the pagans, and they didn't want to hear anything about anyone showing up claiming to be king, but that's exactly what Jesus does. And he comes on the scene proclaiming a radically different path. He talks about a kingdom with radically different values, and he gets scorned from both sides. Right? From those who were supposed to know better, from the religious those that thought they knew their Bibles really well, they wanted him dead. And so did the irreligious. Those who did not want anyone calling out their sin or telling them to change. Friends, as we proclaim him as king, and as we point him others to the kingdom, as we should, we're going to get those same kind of reactions, or we're not getting it right. From the left, from the right. And as I've said here before, we're not children of the elephant, or children of the donkey, or children of the lamb, who is also a lion. We're not people, ultimately, of any flag. We're people of his cross. We can't put our trust and hope in the kingdoms and kings of this world. We can't align ourselves with parties or platforms. We can't adopt their methods or their ethics. We're the people of God. We're about Him, our King. We're about furthering His kingdom. That is our identity. That is our purpose, period. I want to go back to that passage we read at the beginning. We'll get to it later again, of course. But it's a great one. Um, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. But, okay, what's the function of that conjunction? But... It communicates contrast in context. Don't worry like those who don't know the king, who don't have him as father. Don't fear. You don't need to do that. But rather seek. 
Run after it. Search for it. Give maximum effort. Find it, no matter what it takes. It's not just going to come to you or just show up one day at your door. Go looking for it. Seek first, not second. After you get to other things, no. First, make it your priority. Put it at the top of your list. Keep it there, whatever it costs. The kingdom of God, His reign, submit to it, spread it. Not your kingdom, not their kingdom, His kingdom alone. Make that what you're about. And His righteousness. If we're believers, we have Christ's righteousness given to us. And God sees us as He sees Christ. And now, though, He calls us to increasingly exhibit that righteousness, to share that righteousness with the world around us. And, so another conjunction, the command, as it so often does in the Bible, has a promise with it. All these things. So in this context, food and clothing, but so much more, all our needs, all our dreams, all these things will be added to you. It doesn't mean that you and I will be rich, no, but it does mean we won't be abandoned. He'll meet our needs, all of them. He is our king. We're living in his kingdom. We can bank on that. Maybe you're building a business. Don't cut corners. Don't rip people off. Don't work 80 hours a week and sacrifice your family. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You're in the dating game, looking for a spouse. Don't lower your standards. Don't marry someone who doesn't know and follow Jesus. Don't hand over your body to get that person or take advantage of those willing to pay that price. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You're a student. You're trying to get into a good grad school. You're trying to jumpstart your career. Don't push, push your faith down that priority list. Don't skip out on Christian community because you think you have too much to do. Hey, he'll take care of you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, there's a strange phenomenon today, especially as you read um, the Gospel of Matthew, the Bible, really. But it's this thing called the celebrity pastor, right? So you have big churches with millions of men with big churches, millions of online followers. I've known a few of them, some pretty big ones, um, still do. Some of them, it thinks went really terrible for them. But my wife occasionally likes to just point out how dumb it all really is, right? She was the cool kid in school again. Um, but every once in a while, she just talks about how ridiculous it is that you have these, these total nerds, right, in the real world, total nerds, who are jockeying back and forth trying to influence millions of other nerds. And she, I think, puts herself back in her pre-Christian days and she's like, celebrity, you know, like, that's lame. Well, I think that's probably right. But here's something ridiculous. Okay, me, Kevin Larson, in case you didn't know, not a celebrity pastor, in the middle of nowhere, Missouri, I'm trying to lead a, a church through a global pandemic, and I'm getting upset about how our church could have suffered or how maybe I got treated. That's just dumb, right? It's, it's not about me. I've got zero control over it all. It's about our king. It's about his kingdom. How can I be so stupid, right? 
Now, I'm all for glorifying God with our work, right? It's one way I would argue that, that God can use us to further his kingdom. I'm all for dating with a purpose. Wow. Working hard in school. Yeah, glorify God there. We can honor our king in those things. But if you get sales manager of the year, or you find what you think is Mr. Right, or you get into a Harvard grad school, all the while you make it all about you and you try to do it apart from him, it's not going to last. It's going to leave you empty. We're playing around in our sandboxes. We're dressing up in our kids' costumes, acting like we're kings, building these pathetic paper kingdoms, and it's just downright stupid. Just as much as going to that parade in Dallas and waiting for JFK Jr. to fly from heaven, people. It's all dumb, right? We can, we can talk about conspiracy theories, but a conspiracy theory is dumb is that, wow, I'm Kevin Larson, and I can control my world, and I can do amazing things. That is a dumb conspiracy theory. If we have any success, let's find it in seeking his kingdom first. If we endure any suffering, and we will, Let's remember the point. It's him. It's his kingdom. This past week, I was listening to a professor named Alan Noble explain the premise of his new book that's called You Are Not Your Own. And he says that today, and we all, we all know this, we're taught from a very early age this idea that we can be and do whatever we want. Right? We create our identity. We can't. We define our purpose in this world. And so he says, first of all, it's no wonder that, that social media is such a mess, right? It's primarily there that we try to make ourselves and, and prove ourselves today. And it's also no wonder that we're such a mess as people because building that identity apart from God is just impossible. And creating a purpose away from him is exhausting. Noble says that we've been actually given an identity from God. We've been made with a purpose by Him. We are not our own. And coming to realize that gives us joy and freedom to rest. I mentioned those two critical questions at the beginning. Who am I? Why am I here? Here are two more. What's wrong with the world? And how can it be made right? What's wrong with the world? How can it be made right? What's wrong? with us, with the world. Well, more than anything, we've turned from our identity and purpose. We've not just disobeyed our God, we've turned from His love. We've shirked His rule over our lives. We've said, we said, I don't want to be under your rule, God. I want that fruit no matter what. I want to be the boss. We've sinned, and now we, with all creation, are under a curse, and we deserve death and judgment. But what can be done? How can things be made right? Christ's death brings forgiveness for sin. It brings healing for the world. His resurrect, resurrection reverses the curse. It brings life to us and all things. His death and resurrection, they restore us and everything to the way things were intended. Back to that identity, back to that purpose where we live under his rule. Safe, content. The king, contrary to what they thought in that day, yeah, with the Bible, the king is also a servant, one who gave up his life, that we and the whole world could be changed. Carr's church, he is our king. He is our king. It's his kingdom that we're all about. 
His kingdom. Let's give our hearts. Let's give our lives to Him. And let's do that more and more as we dig here in Matthew. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for our um, foolishness. For trying to do things our way. And not just realizing how much easier and much joyful it would be to just um, live under you and for you. Use our time in these um, pages to revive our hearts and, and just give us joy and confidence in, in you. Forgive us again for the ways we stray. And, and God, I just pray that um, you would bring renewal um, starting here. You bring renewal in the church in America. And we would just be reminded, and around the world as well, that um, you are sovereign, that you're what everything is about, that your reign is coming and has come. And Lord, just radically um, convict us and reshape our priorities, Father, that um, we would seek you first. Thank you for seeking us first. <laughs>